here we are, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. As we think about this, this chapter of the first three is really, it's the pivot point. It's how um, Solomon is diving into the solution uh, to all of the problems. The first two chapters of the book, uh, Solomon tells us in a rather depressing way about the vanity of life. How all of his work, all of his toil, everything that he goes towards uh, ends up as vanity of vanities, a striving after the wind. And he recounts that journey and that search for gain. You should have heard that question here again in chapter 3. What does man gain from all of his toil? In chapter 2, last week, we saw his search for that gain in education, pleasure, great works, entertainment, and sex. But none of it actually produced lasting gain. He said, I had a good time sometimes, but none of it amounted to gain. And so the first two chapters are rather bleak. There's not a whole lot of good news in them. But at the end of chapter 2, Solomon gives us a a surprise. As he says, the key to wisdom, the key to living life in a world marked by frustration and vexation and vanity, is to enjoy the good things in life. And to enjoy them as they come from the hand of God. The difference he draws is that between gain from these objects, finding meaning and purpose in these finite things of life, versus receiving them as a gift, as something that comes from God. Don't demand the infinite from the finite. All of these things, these good things of life, point to the infinite God. And so the end of chapter 2 sets us up for this transition of chapter 3. Really, this chapter is almost entirely about the sovereignty of God. It's almost entirely about contrasting God with those first two chapters in his vain search. And we have, in this chapter, an honest wrestling with living in a world marked by frustrations, and this unflinching honesty that Solomon has forces him to look to God. What's the solution? Well, let's compare God. Now, sometimes in in Christian circles, it's popular to have uh, a life verse. And I must be honest, I'm not entirely sure what it means uh, to have a life verse. Uh, Is it a verse that you really like? Is it a verse that you relate to? Is it one that brings you inspiration for your life? Or does it summarize or signify something specific uh, that kind of marks your life? If I had to pick a life verse, uh, there's a short list on there, but Ecclesiastes 3.1 might be it. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the sun. He says life is complicated. There are different seasons that you and I are going to walk through. And that makes it in some ways hopelessly complicated. That striving after the wind. I'm going to try to control life, but I realize that I can't. And so the solution Solomon offers us in chapter 3 is that we are called to live as creatures. We are called to live as those who know that we are not God and that we are ultimately not in control. And he gives us throughout this chapter some truths to live by as creatures. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be made by God and to not be God yourself? Because if we are honest, this world is constantly tempting you to think that you are God. 
that you will find everything you need by turning further within. It will tempt you to feel like God by making life all about you. It will tempt you to feel like God by saying that you can know everything. I mean, you have access to endless information through your smartphone. It will tempt you to feel like God by saying that you get to determine what is right and wrong. And the key to living well in a vain world is to know that you are not God and that you are a creature. And the first truth we have here is that we should know and recognize that God appoints the seasons of our lives. We must reckon with that God is sovereign over our lives. And we see this in verse 1 and in verse 10. Verse 1 says that there is a season and a time for all of these things. And then we get that very famous poetry after that. But the, the Hebrew there implies something more than this translation gives us. It's an appointed time. There is an appointed time in your life for all of these seasons. And then he reiterates it in verse 10. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. There is a season that God has appointed for all of us to walk through. And through it, he will make everything beautiful in his timing. And we have to look at this in at least two different ways. The broad sense that God governs all the seasons of civilizations and of world history. But also a personal sense. We can keep God at an arm's distance here and just say, well, he's directing all of world events. He's also directing your seasons. As an individual person, guiding you through the highs and the lows of living in a fallen world. And this means many things to us. But chief among them, it means this. That the things that are happening out there and the things that are happening in your life are not random. They didn't just happen. God has appointed them for a reason. And this means that they're not meaningless. That's why that NIV translation of vanity of vanities is not accurate. The fact that God has appointed these things for your life, that this is the lot that God has given you, brings weight to everything that happens in your life. All of it matters. A weight beyond the breath-like nature of life. And that is the contrast that I think runs throughout this chapter. Is that we strive after the wind, we strive to control things, the seasons of life, and it slips through our fingers. But the same isn't true for God. God is not stuck in the vanity. He is Lord even over that. Our life is a breath here today and gone tomorrow, but God is eternal. And he lasts forever. And that is the good news. The second truth to live as a creature is to recognize that life is hopelessly complicated. Hopelessly this way in that way. And so we have these famous lines of poetry that's read at many a funeral, not just Christian funerals, even read at the funerals of unbelievers, because it captures so much of what is true about living in this world. Solomon writes, beginning in verse 2, he says, There's a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, 
a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. That's the complexity <laughs> of your life. I find I read that and I'm like, oh yeah, I see that. But when I'm in the midst of it, how do I know when it's the time to keep silent and when it's the time to speak? I have to admit I've got that one wrong on more than one occasion. But what Solomon is getting at here is that life is an enigma. It's hard to define. And this means, if it means anything, that our pithy slogans that we often put out there as Christians kind of stupid they don't add up we like to say things that uh that just don't deal with the complexity of life and so solomon summarizes life with these 14 contrasting pairs and these pairs are one good thing paired with something negative we have to keep in light there verse 1 and verse 10 these things are god given they are given to us in this frustrating world but there are times to plant and harvest, appointed by God. There's a time to kill and to heal, appointed by God. A time to break down and to build up, appointed by God. To weep and laugh, to mourn and dance. A time to love and to hate, appointed by God. And those are the cycles that we live in. And they are largely beyond our control. If you want to deal with anxiety in your life, What's the root of anxiety? It's often that you're trying to play God, but deep down you know you cannot play God. Solomon says here, the solution is to just recognize that God's in control. This is the tension of our lives. We ping pong back and forth between times of good and times of bad. We had a particularly striking example of this in our own life, me and Emily, I mentioned in our first sermon in this series that about five and a half years ago, my friend who stood up in my wedding, his wife and their three children, died unexpectedly in a car crash. They were traveling to their final missionary training. They finally got enough funding to go to Japan, and they were hit in their minivan by a semi-truck. We received that news a few days before our ninth wedding anniversary. We had this this interesting contrast where we had a time to weep and then a few days later we celebrated our ninth anniversary and we had a time to rejoice and to dance and then a few days later we were at the funeral for the entire family and we were weeping and mourning again back and forth back and forth and that is so much of our lives often a lot longer periods in between but we have to recognize that the times of our lives are largely out of our control we cannot shepherd the wind. And life does not fit within those pithy Christian sayings. Or as one radio local radio station puts it, we're always uplifting. Life's not always, yeah, life's not always uplifting. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it doesn't add up. And it doesn't make sense. And you coming up to someone in that period of time and say, hey, I'm going to be uplifting it's like nails on a chalkboard. And so pr Solomon prompts us with a familiar question in verse 9. What gain, in light of all of this poetry, 
What gain has the worker from his toil? And the answer again implied is nothing. No gain. So the next thing to see, the next truth, is this comparison that Solomon now offers between us as humans and God. That you and I are not him. So chapters 1 and 2 revolve largely around that man's toil. It's Solomon by his own works, by his own cunning, his own wisdom, his own strength. He's trying to grasp onto stuff. He's trying to find that gain and that meaning in life. And it all escapes him. And so the contrast comes here. That as we struggle to find that, by our own strength, it can only come from God. God is ultimately in control. We speak here of his, his sovereignty, that he controls everything. And when we recognize that he does, it lessens the vanity of life. When you rage against that, it increases your vanity in life. The message of Ecclesiastes could just be summarized as that. We are not God. So stop trying to be God. We gather only to lose. We grasp the wind and we get nothing. We try to find satisfaction to make our lives mean something and we come back with a fistful of air. The message is we need someone greater. God must act. God must save us. For we cannot save ourselves. And I think that's what we see here. That God is not one of us in verses 11 through 15. And really, the section following that as well. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. The heart of the good news of this chapter and Solomon giving us this body blow after body blow of our attempts to shepherd the wind, our attempts to play God, our attempts to control life by showing that God is so much greater than us. He gives us these contrasts. And I really do believe that chapter 3 is meant to be contrasted with everything that comes before. First contrast you see is the toil in the work of man produces vanity. What does man gain from his toil? Nothing. It is a vanity of vanity. It is breath of breaths, vapor of vapor. But God's work, it says, producing, produces this lasting beauty. That everything in its time, God will make beautiful. And so we see the beauty of creation, the goodness of the pleasures of life. And we get faint glimpses of the beauty of how God intended this world to be and how it will be in the new creation. And yet, we get the other side of the equation, that our work is frustrated. Our work is frustrated and doesn't bring about what we want. But God's work brings beauty. Second contrast is that man's knowledge is limited, 
but God knows everything. It says that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, and yet it also says that whatever God has done, whatever will be, is already has been. That God knows all these things that are going to happen. God has appointed all of these seasons of your life, and we look at this and we try to figure it out. And we cannot. That honestly, if we think about it for a moment, we can barely see beyond what's going to happen today. We have plans for the week. If you're like me, I walk in on Monday morning and I go, I'm, this is what I'm going to get done, and I'm, I get something else done. Something I didn't see comes up, and I get sidetracked. And yet we want to control it. We want to pretend like it's all going to go according to our plan. And think of this for just even a moment. I'm, as I get older, <laughs> I realize that I, I forget so much of what has already happened in my life. And that I can't see beyond today what's really going to happen tomorrow. And yet God knows everything that has happened in every corner of the universe that's going on right now for eternity past and eternity future. He knows it all. And I want to pretend like I know a lot. The contrast is stark. Third, third contrast. Man dies while yearning for eternity. It says God has fixed it in our hearts that we might yearn for eternity. Going again back to the garden. God made man to live with him in perfect harmony for all eternity. Sin broke that relationship, but that desire remains, and that's the desire that's really motivating this entire search of Solomon. He longs for something that will last, especially himself. And the contrast here is that we die we are returned to dust, but God doesn't die. God is eternal. Vanity does not hold him in. And so we long for eternity because we are actually longing for the God who is eternal. The fourth contrast. Solomon spends his life on works, on toil, in finding gain, to find something that will last, and all it is, is a breath of breath. It's like a puff of smoke in the air, here today and gone tomorrow. And then Solomon says this, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. The frustration he has in chapter 1 and 2 is that he spends all this time learning, he spends all this time doing works, and then he realizes this isn't going to last. Solomon built the temple, and within a few generations, it was burned to the ground. It didn't last. Our works don't last, but what God does endures forever. It is not vain. And you should hear in here an echo of the whole grace versus works discussion that we often have. Why can your works not save you? Because they don't last. They are limited. They are mere breath. Why does God's grace save you? Because his grace lasts forever. Nothing can be added to it, and nothing can be taken from it. Or as Jesus says, whatever the Father puts into my hand, whoever he puts into my hand, will not be taken out. Because whatever God does lasts forever. 
So who are we to think that our works can be added to the works of Christ or can negate his works? Doesn't work, does it? You are mere breath. You need someone greater than you. And when God does something, he does it with his power so that it lasts forever. So when Christ hangs upon the cross and he yells out, it's finished. See, God's work is done. You can't add to it. Nothing can change it. It has been established from here on out forever. What is the hope that a Christian has? Not in his own works or her own works, but that God does something and it lasts forever. Nothing can change it. If you really want to dig deep into this, what makes it more perplexing is that especially this is highlighted in the New Testament as this God who does stuff that endures forever, he then chooses to partner with finite people like us so that we might do his work here in the world. If you want to do something that will endure, do God's will. The fifth contrast between man and God is that man chases after the wind. He tries to shepherd it. He tries to control it. And you get this picture of futility, but our lives are this chasing, this chasing after the wind. And the contrast comes in verse 15. While we chase after the wind, God seeks what has been driven away. God seeks what has been driven away. We seek the wind. He seeks what has been driven away. You really should feel this one. I think of all of uh, the vain attempts at trying to fix things or make things better. Uh, it's running into that wall head first again and again. I think of all the things in my life that have been driven away, sometimes by my own sin and foolishness. The broken relationships, the loved ones and friends who no longer walk with the Lord in faith. Think of the evil rulers who persecute and harm your brothers and sisters in Christ, the loved ones lost to tragedies, all these things that have been driven away. Think of friends who passed away, my nephew who passed away last year, old congregants I know and loved and who have since gone to be with the Lord. So much has been driven away. And the good news is, is that while we chase after the wind, come back empty-handed, God seeks what has been driven away. And he gets whatever he seeks. He is not frustrated by vanity. In fact, Christ comes down to earth and he says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The whole gospel message is this idea is that God seeks that which has been driven away from him by sin. And he overcomes and he conquers. Our toil produces not a whole lot of benefits. But God seeks what has been lost and is establishing a kingdom. A kingdom where there will be, we read in Revelation, no more sin, no more death, no more tears, no more divisions. That the gospel turns fathers to sons and sons to their fathers, mothers to the daughters and daughters towards the mother. That broken relationships are healed, broken families are healed. This broken world is healed because God seeks what has been driven away. And we can all think of loved ones, friends, families, hurts that have just weigh on our hearts. The good news is that God seeks those things. 
and God gets what he wants. To really drive this contrast home, in the remaining verses, Solomon tells us that humans, at least in some ways, are closer to animals than they are to God. This is not him stumbling upon Darwinism and saying, yeah, we're just come from the apes, but rather that both man and beast are creatures. That means we are created. We are dependent upon God for our existence. God is dependent upon no one for his existence. That God breathed life into the creatures and he breathed life into humanity. And that both are ultimately reduced to dust. So man, in a lot of ways, is closer to creatures and animals than to God. Now, of course, we went through this in Genesis. Man is also made in the image of God, and there's an infinite chasm between him and the creatures because we are personal and they are not. But Solomon wants you to feel this, that you are closer to the ant than you are to God. So stop trying to be God. What is the solution he gives? What is the solution in this text? We are called to live as creatures in God's world, and at the heart of this is to recognizing what I've been saying again and again, that God sovereignly rules over all of life, and that you trust that he will make the end beautiful in its time. That the story is not over. There are often many objections that arise when we think of God's sovereignty. And we shouldn't push back, all right, because there, there, there really are things that don't make sense on this side of earth. How does God allow such evil to happen? Is God still good? Is he still fair? Is he still just? Of course, the answer the Bible gives is yes. And God gives that answer often without explaining more beyond that. Yeah, I'm in control and I'm good. But I think if we ponder just for a moment some of the alternatives, what if we were to say God's not sovereign? What if we were to say God doesn't exist? What if we were to say God isn't in control of everything and that he's not directing it towards his desired end? I'll give you a few solutions or what that would mean, implications. It would mean, in no uncertain terms, that life is truly a crapshoot. It's all just chance. And you, brothers and sisters, when you step out your front door tomorrow morning, should be very careful because anything can happen to you at any point in time. There is no ultimate purpose in this universe. It is all chaos. In a world without a sovereign God, anything can happen. And brothers and sisters, we have seen such a worldview in practice for these last two years. A world that is driven by fear. If there is no God above, then living in fear, even of a virus where over 99% of the people who get it will still live, could make you hunker down for two years in your house. Now I need to be careful here. doesn't mean that everybody who disagreed with me on everything about COVID is living in fear. But hopefully you see Many people are. And why? Because they don't believe in a good and sovereign God. And so anything can happen to them. So you better do whatever you can to make sure it doesn't happen to you. If God is not sovereign, then he will not bring good out of your suffering. There is no purpose beyond your suffering at all. 
you just live in a cold, indifferent, pitiless universe, as Dawkins put it. There's no justice. There's no restoration. All those tears you've cried will not be wiped away by the Savior at the end of time. None of it matters. So just get over it. If God is not sovereign, then there is only vanity. There's only breath. And so we have a choice to make. We can look at how Scripture defines God and his sovereignty and realize, as Solomon says, that we're not gods. And that if we try to play his part, we will only increase our vanity. And we can throw God's sovereignty out the window, and all that leaves us with is despair. None of this has any greater meaning to it. Or as another pastor put it, if we deny the God who is there, if we deny the sovereignty of God, what we end up doing is throwing out what we know, that evil exists, that it is bad, it is definable, and we don't like it. But what we don't know, why did God allow this particular evil? Well, if God's not there, it's not evil, it just is. So do not throw out what you know for what you do not yet know. So how do we live in light of this? Solomon's solution is clear. Verses 12 through 13. He said, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then in 22. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? How should we live? Gift versus gain. Demanding gain isn't going to work. Receive the things you have, the seasons of life that God has given you as a gift. Recognize that your works and toil will not bring that satisfaction, but God's grace can. If you receive the good and the bad of life as from the hand of a good and loving Father, that changes everything. Christians must know and live like they know that that is the God of the universe. That he rules, that he is unchanging, that he is holy, that he is good, and that he has promised to set everything right in the end. And that God seeks us while we are seeking after the wind. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you this morning that you are the God who is there, the one who spoke this universe into existence, the one who upholds it by the word of your power. Lord, might you help us to see your glory and your greatness, that though we are made in your image, Lord, that your greatness far surpasses us, and that all of our work and our toil without you is utterly meaningless. But that, Lord, you have given us grace. You have given us good gifts, and you have sought us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we come to see ourselves in light of who you are and what you are doing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.